Welcome to the Smart Tech Check Podcast, hosted by Mark Vina, your home for candid, insightful, and provocative conversations about the smart home, home automation, security, smartphones, PC and console gaming, and much more. Hi, my name is Mark Vina, host of the Smart Tech Check Podcast. Today is Thursday, March 24th, 2022. Joining me for today's podcast is tech journalism's triple threat. I got, I got to change that phrase every time just to get you guys excited in the morning. Uh, Stuart Walpin, who writes for Popular Mechanics, U.S. News, Techlicious, Investopedia, and other wonderful publications. Bob Pegarero, who writes frequently on tech policy for Wirecutter, PC Magazine, and good old USA Today. And we can't forget John Quain, who writes for the New York Times, Smart Cities, and Tom's Guide. Gentlemen, good afternoon. And how is your Thursday going? So far, so good. <laughs> yeah, so awesome. I'm going to, I'm going to start sending out uh, gift cards for coffee in the morning to get you guys excited. Uh, in the <laughs> um, so I want to get right to our topics because um, I think they're really good topics. It's been kind of kind of sort of a, a slow tech week, but that's always good. There's, uh, there's one topic that, I, that I, I'm sure that the three of uh, my three uh, compadres are going to really appreciate, but uh, I want to get those up on the, on the screen real quick. Here, let me pull up the slides here. There we go. And, you know, I, I cannot wait to get your opinion on each of this, but I'm sure you've been following this, you know, now that the M1 Ultra is kind of out there in the, in, the, uh, in the public space, you know, there are review units out there. Uh, the big publications now are actually reviewing the performance of the M1 Ultra. And uh, lots and lots of um, very credible publications you know, uh, Tom's Hardware, The Verge, and other publications are kind of really taking Apple to task on some of the, the what they're calling misleading uh, processor performance claims with the M1 Ultra that they made at the um, uh, made at the announcement event uh, a few weeks ago. And I guess the question I got to start with, and I want to get each of your opinions on this, is why does Apple do this? I mean, it, 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 it's you know, this is not the first time where you know they put up. You know, they, they make either the wrong compare to the wrong um, process Intel processor or to the wrong graphics card. It's, it's I think, you know, the, the um, NVIDIA 3090 is, is probably the best graphics card on the market. And it, they're saying, oh, God, the M1 Ultra can blow the doors away from it using lower power. I, the question I have, why does the Apple have to resort to that kind of behavior? Why can't, you know, they, they've accomplished so much with their silicon and their silicon on its own merits is very, very strong, you know, especially because it's optimized for its operating system. So let me start with Rob. Rob, why do you think Apple just engages in this kind of like sleight of hand behavior that you would not associate with Apple and other topics? So what's there are so many mysteries to this company. Uh, I mean, why <laughs> does Apple keep grasping for every last dime it can extract out of the App Store when it has so much money, it literally doesn't know what to do with it? Uh, you know, why bother? Let it go. You know, you can let some business escape. Yeah, you know, I guess you, but this is a problem throughout technology. You have startups that, that can't let go of the notion that they still have to do the same things that look a little different when you're the, the scrappy underdog that has to growth hack your way into relevance. But you can't keep mm -hmm. doing that. Eventually, you'll wind up getting it to look bad. Or if you're really lucky, you can, you know, wind up getting under investigation for one thing or another. Right. Yeah, I, I'm just it just it just floors me. Now, 
the Intels, the AMDs of the world, I mean, they've been in the processor business from day one. So not to say they have been, you know, they somehow sometimes they don't, they don't make the same type of egregious mistakes, but they've lived in a benchmark world for virtually the histories of their company. So they're generally very, very tight when they're showing benchmark um, numbers because they want to back them up. So, John, let me tee this up with you. Is this just, you know, should Apple be taking the task or is this just, hey, you know, this is Apple being Apple? I think they should be taking the task, but uh, you know, part of it is they've they've have a long, you know, as Rob alluded to, this long history, and you just alluded to this long history of being second banana, never quite technical enough, never quite fast enough, never quite, you know, and way too expensive. Yeah, you know, people love the way their shiny new toys look, but really, they're never cutting edge. You know, that's that's the rap against Apple, never cutting edge, and so. They feel, you know, slighted by that. And as a second, they kind of want to go, no, 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 we're doing really well. Our chips are really fast. And, and um, so that's certainly one historical aspect of it. Um, but the other part is to, you know, I used to be, as these guys well know, the guy in the lab who benchmarked things, you know, until midnight every night. And it was just, that's what you did with these chips. That stuff doesn't matter so much anymore. I mean, there are very few applications that it really counts. We're sort of exceeded the use of a smartphone or a desktop computer. Does it matter in autonomous cars? Yeah, it matters in autonomous cars. But, you know, mm -hmm. as far as if I'm rendering things to edit the next Netflix movie that I just got a contract for on my Apple, you know, my Mac, nah, it probably doesn't matter that much. I mean, that's the chip they gave me. I don't really have a choice either. It's not like the old days when it was like AMD and Intel and which chip is faster and should you get this desktop computer? If you're on a Mac, you don't have a choice. So, eh, it's not such a big deal. Yep. Well, you, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, as you know, John, because, you know, well, the three of you, but including you, John, uh, you know, benchmarks, you know, depending on how you execute the benchmark, you can get benchmarks to say different things, you know, right. and, and depending on the applications you load, what's the compare, what's the configuration of the system. You know, a lot of times that happens where you can, you know, you benchmark a system with um, a, a smaller load of memory, a smaller, more, more storage, which affects overall performance. Um, and, and again, like you said, the, the, the performance uh, levels of processors today of all different brands have taken off so enormously. I mean, Intel has done an incredible job with the new Alder Lake stuff that's been out that's getting rave reviews. But it's really harder and harder to, to demonstrate a really high, you know, a, a performance peak. Now, Apple's also saying, by the way, not only do our processors perform very well, but they, because they're ARM-based, they also do it on a, a, a dramatically lower level of power which is, you know, again, that's another attribute that's coming into this conversation. I don't think the average consumer, you know, really doesn't appreciate. But Stuart, what's your thoughts on this? You know, you're always you always have a uh, an energetic opinion on topics like that. And I'd love to pin your brain on what you think. Well, thank, <laughs> thanks for raising expectations beyond any reasonable level. But, uh, my, my initial thought on this is to paraphrase Claude Rains from Casablanca. Uh, I'm shocked. Shocked. Oh, here we go. Exaggerating or creating misleading claims. I have a little show and tell here. Yes, sir. This is an Apple Newton. That's the Austin Hayes. Apple, Apple is not unlike every other tech company extent. It is our, I think the three of us or the four of us, what we do as our number one job is to debunk manufacturer claims. 
this is our job. And this is the job of the tech media. So what Apple is, and of course, we always hope that when we do this, that companies will begin to behave themselves. But considering this has been going on since Edison invented the light bulb, you're going to get companies who are going to lie, mislead, hyperbolize about the capabilities of their products. I'm working on three different um, round, review roundups right now. One on digital picture frames, one on rechargeable AA batteries, oh, excitement, um, and uh, one on self-emptying vacuum cleaners. And mm -hmm. I am finding that all of them have misleading claims. For one thing, self-emptying vacuum cleaners are not self-emptying. They're merely delayed emptying. Damn it. Uh, rechargeable batteries um, put out uh, 1.2 volts versus single-use batteries, 1.5 volts. But battery company, the rechargeable battery company, oh, they'll replace any single-use battery. No, they won't. Not in every circumstance. Digital picture frames claim a lot of their frames have 2K resolution. Mm -hmm. Flat-out lie. So this is, you know, oh, a company has misrepresented their technology? Thursday. It's just another day in tech world. Right. Well, only you could bring up a Casablanca quote during uh, one of the podcasts, and I do appreciate that cinematic uh, reference. That's great. Uh, the, the only th thing I'll say about this, so we can move on to the next topic, is that this really is an important topic. You really have to have good transparency and good honesty when you're reporting benchmarks. I get it that all kinds of manufacturers make all kinds of claims, and it's up to you know, established journalists like you guys to you know, point that out. But keep in mind, not every consumer you know, reads Tom's Hardware or, or reads uh, PC Gamer or some of the other prestigious publications that do a lot of great work on, um, uh, on uh, processor performance. And, uh, you, know, you know, I've even gotten pings from people, and I can't believe this. I wrote about this this morning on my newsletter. I've got people pinging me saying, hey, money's not an object because a Mac Studio M1 Ultra, if you configure it the right way, we're talking about this last week, could be like $7,000 if you go crazy. Uh, but I've got some people saying, hey, can I use it for gaming? You know, because of their performance claims. And nobody in their right mind would ever buy a Mac Studio with an M1 Ultra. I don't care how high-end you configure it for gaming for a whole bunch of other reasons. But those processor claims that they made, uh, the performance claims they made at the announcement event, you know, for, to the unsuspected consumer, they might say, you know, why not go go crazy? Why not go for the gusto? And I'll have a great, you know, Mac platform and I can play games at the same time, not considering the fact that uh, there's a lot of reasons why you don't really want to use a Mac platform um, for gaming. But having said that, let's move on to the next topic here because we can talk this one to death here. And that <laughs> is um, uh, talking about outer space. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, Rob, you know, apparently um, there is a, I believe there was a conference that you attended, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, this yes, is a there bigger, was. bigger issue. So, let, yeah, let's uh, let's tee this up because, you know, I, I want to get for the holidays. I want to get Stuart a gift card for some private space travel. And uh, it's going to be a large ready. gift card, a quarter of a million <laughs> dollar gift card. Uh, right. No, that's not even enough. Uh, but <laughs> you know, we'll see. So I spent Monday and Tuesday at Satellite 2020 uh, conference at the convention center downtown. And there was a lot of discussion about private space travel, which right now is the province of three companies. And problem number one is only one actually has a published fare. That would be Virgin Galactic where $450,000 Right. You, you don't want to take out a home equity line of credit. 
will get you a seat on their uh, suborbital space plane, which I should note has had for, one for, for, for a 10-minute flight, right? Isn't it like 10 yeah, minutes? Yeah, one successful test flight with people on board featuring Richard Branson. Um, mm -hmm. Blue Origin, they their, their fourth launch with people on board, again, suborbital, that's supposed to happen March 29th. They, they don't actually have a published number, but if you have to ask, you won't want to know. Uh, and then, of course, SpaceX, they have a launch scheduled April 3rd, which will send a crew of four to the International Space Station, the first all-private mission to the ISS. Uh, we do know that the three passengers, the fourth one is a VP at uh, this company, Axiom, that, is, that has bought the mission, paid $55 million each, which you, I cannot get on a lot of credit in, in close to that. Uh, but there's interesting stuff going on. Number one... You know, the fact that you have multiple companies, some of which, you know, Virgin Galactic, I'm not sure about their financial model. They don't really have a line of business. Uh, Blue Origin, they're building a very large rocket, the new Glenn, that will be capable of basically flying almost any payload NASA could possibly order up. They're building engines for United Launch Lines, which already has a launch business of its own for the DOD and private companies. And of course, SpaceX has been fabulously successful and is right now eating the Russians' lunch since they've decided to stage a temper tantrum and uh, remove themselves from uh, the, the business of launching commercial satellites. Uh, number two, NASA is actually working. They successfully privatized space travel, which has worked out incredibly well. And we, we can all thank Elon Musk for giving the United States the freedom to tell the Russians to go screw off, since we don't need them to take astronauts to and from the ISS anymore. Uh, NASA wants the ISS's replacement to also be a private enterprise project where it would just basically be one of many tenants. And so the space agency signed worried about 400 million in change in funding in December to three companies that are working on different projects. So all of those would in fact allow for private space travel remains to be seen just how many uh, Marriott or Hyatt points you would, you would need to uh, book a room. I'm assuming it would be all of them, but a guy can dream. Right? If anybody has enough frequent flyer miles, Rob, it's you. Okay. If you don't have enough on the West Coast, you know, I've got a really uh, plus, you know, without an award chart, it's really hard to know how much you should save up. <laughs> so, Rob, before I get before I get John to weigh in on this, uh, the question I have for you, you know, we're all familiar with the the, the age old uh, phrase, price elasticity. The lower the price is, you know, the the more yep. demand there is for a product. Where do you think the price has to be to really for this become quasi mainstream, you know, um, meaning that, you know, there's a long, you know, right now there's just, a, it's really celebrities, people who can swing that amount. The, the, the actor from SNL, uh, Pete Davidson, if I'm not mistaken, I think he's, isn't he going on Blue Origin? No, or, he canceled the flight because they had to Like if he had a schedule conflict, that's ridiculous, dude. You clear your schedule to go to space. Right. I was a little surprised at that. Also. Yeah, he was getting a haircut. Oh, it it was, wasn't it the urine test before he goes on the flight? I mean, I assume. <laughs> no, it's the tattoo but, but test. But but showed up on radar. Department? So but, it's Rob, interesting. Is, is, is there a price electricity thing? So I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, when I was at South by Southwest, there was one exhibit by a company called Worldview, which is advertising going to the edge of space. It's actually taking a balloon up to 100,000 feet, which is, is not actually close to the edge of space, but is basically at the very top of the stratosphere where the sky is a deep black and you do see the Earth's curvature. They would charge 50,000 bucks 
for a seat and you, you'd actually have a long time to enjoy it. So even if there's no weightlessness, you spend more time up there. Uh, there's a company called Zero G, which basically lets you experience weightlessness in a 727 flying this parabolic path. Right. Same way yes. not train for weightlessness. They charge 7,000 bucks. And, you know, clearly Zero G can make a business out of that. Mm-hmm. And, and look, like I myself spent $450 last September to spend 30 minutes flying in a 1945 vintage B-25 bomber. And I think that was money very well spent. So (laughs) there's definitely a market. I think, you know, if I could spend 10,000 bucks on a suborbital flight to space, yeah, I I would make room for that. You know, I've, we've all had our indulgences. Uh, When, when it's stuck in a six figure territory, that's, that's That's not a mass market thing, but, you got to get there somewhere. Everyone at this this panel on space tourism at this conference basically said this is a matter of scale. You know, you fly more and more as you have other businesses that let you, you know, get this thing spinning up. It's it's the whole you're a startup, you're pushing a flywheel. Eventually, it spins on its own, and so the cost maybe it drops from four hundred fifty thousand dollars at Virgin Galactic to two hundred fifty, maybe with um, Blue Origin if if they drop to a million to half a million. It's really hard to say. Uh, it certainly helps that the three billionaires behind these companies, Elon Musk, Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos, have a lot of money, especially Bezos and Musk. So they can, you know, they can afford to eat some losses for a little while. So, uh, John, are you coughing up to 450 to go on the next uh John? No, I mean, it's funny that you you asked that question, you know, in consumer electronics, the price was always like around $200. Whenever you hit a yeah. device that was $200, boom, it would take off. Right. Uh, computer equipment is about $500. You know, the computer that you always want is about $2,000. And that has remained steady for, you know, 30 years or something like that. Um, I think the price here, the price they often talk about is about $250,000. I remember when they were talking about this before and the guys from Blue Origin and stuff were saying, and from Virgin were saying, but we think, you know, very quickly the price is going to come down from 400 and some odd thousand dollars to 250,000. Oh, so, so that was sort of their, that was their, their consumer electronics, $200 mark. Um, you know, will that, was that going to get a lot of people? There's probably a lot of one percenters who will go on it. Yeah, I, I'm sure that would happen. But I'm more intrigued by the literal moonshot. And, um, you know, SpaceX right now sort of has that wrapped up. But they, after NASA said they were uh, going to use more than one company, now they've just come out and said ah, this week, we will use two. And they are going to bring another company on board to take people to the moon. So I think that's... I'm more intrigued by that. You know, the idea of seeing the curvature of space, what Rob described as the taking up in the balloon, you know, which is basically like a weather balloon that you're taking up is no, great. Really, but really comfortable seats and everything. It, <laughs> it looks comfortable <laughs> in the market <laughs> itself. I, I know, but you said you've got lots more time to enjoy it. And what struck me is, or be totally terrified by it. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know. well. That'll help with the anxiety. Right. I like the short, you know, the short trip. It's like, even if you're terrified, you're coming down soon. So it's going to be over <laughs> <laughs> the question I've got for Stuart, and so you'll remember, I think you'll, knowing you, you'll remember this, is that Disney, and I, I want to say it was either Disneyland or maybe it was Disney World, they had a ride long retired about 20 years ago. I think they got rid of it. It was called Mission to Mars. Yes. And you got into it. You got into a 
uh, you know, of course, it was like 25 or 30 people got into what looked like a space capsule and they simulated a launch to Mars. You know, they they had hydraulics. It was kind of like a a very, very primitive version of a flight simulator that uh, they used to train pilot. But it was very effective, you know, and I'm surprised. And maybe Disney's planning things like that because they have rides that, uh, that, that provide an immersive experience using other types of means. That, to me, would be really interesting, that if you could simulate on the ground without taking off, even with 500 bucks or 1000 bucks for a very extensive 20-minute, hey, here's what a launch from Earth really feels like. God knows with, 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 with video resolution, you could do all kinds of inc incredible things, frankly. You can't, can't simulate... Um, lack of gravity, but nevertheless, um, although you might be able to simulate that with um, 3D uh, capability, you know, uh, with uh, 3D um, um, video the technology. not VR. space travel. Come on. <laughs> uh, that's not the same thing. So, Stuart, what's your thoughts? Oh, I know I, you're not going to pay well, the, the 500,000. Good question. Which would be more likely once, to make you throw up? VR you know, or space once, once you know the real thing is available, the fake becomes far less... Um, desirable. I mean, I remember mm. going to CES you know, 20, 25 years ago. What used to be the Hilton Hotel used yes. to have a Star Trek ride. Yes. Which I took, which was really cool. You know, I mean, you got into a, a space, uh, uh, you know, the Star or the Space Shuttle Galileo, and it took <laughs> you around and it had, you know, the hydraulics and then, you know, the, the 360 degree screens. And it was Quite an effective experience for what was, you know, the mid-1990s. But now that we know you can actually go into space, I think these sort of approximations, psychologically, you know, it's, it's cool, but it ain't the real thing, and I want the real thing. My second thought on this is, as much as I would love to go on one of these rides, this is going to sound incredibly ridiculous on his face, I'm holding out for orbital flights. Um, you know, I mean, <laughs> what we remember about NASA, we remember John Glenn far more than we remember right. Alan Shepard. Um, right. And what most people don't remember about John Glenn is that we remember John Glenn because he was the first American, not the first human, the first American in orbit, where John, where Alan Shepard simply took one of these flights that these billionaires are giving away or selling. That That's what they're doing. They're approximating what Al Shepard did. So I think the experience that John Glenn had is where maybe not price-wise, but but certainly could be a breaking point to break this kind of of idea or 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 expense into the mainstream. Because once people can go up into orbit and spend a day circling around the planet, experiencing sunrise and sunset within an hour or an hour and a half. I think that will just blow away the kinds of experiences that are right now being sold for a half a billion dollars. So I think these are really interesting. And, and it's like anything else in technology. You start off with something that's very, very cool. But, you know, if you just if you just focus your your future binoculars and look into the future, that the next step is orbital flights. And I think that's what's really going to capture the public imagination and and maybe really start or even trips to the space station. That's I think will really capture people's imaginations in a way that simply going up for 10 minutes can't. 
Well, we've got to move on to the next topic, but I'm sure those orbital flights will include um, the, the kind of experience that uh, Rob is looking for, which apparently includes throwing up. So we'll make sure that... Your uh, <laughs> gravity <laughs> adaptation, it's tough, man. I've, I've read about it, at least. <laughs> well, hey, listen, so the next topic is really important. They're kind of related, three and four. And, you know, Stuart, this is something that you brought up because there are some really profound technology um, aspects of what we're seeing uh, in the ongoing war between uh, Russia and Ukraine. Um, you know, the thing I want to get to start you off with, Stuart, as you kind of opine on this, is you know, the, the Russian militaries had such kind of a mythical reputation. You know, every, you know, four or five weeks ago, there was this feeling they were going to roll into Ukraine and they were going to be raising the Russian flag over Kiev. And they weren't going to, I don't think anybody believed they were going to be greeted with flowers and, 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 and in a welcoming type of way. But I, it's so shocking the way the, the Russian military forces perform, and certainly technology has been part of this. But I guess the question that I want you to address right off the bat, have we been overestimating the sophistication and robustness of Russian technology for the last 40, 40 years? It kind of feels like that. But anyway, let me uh, get you to jump in. Well, I have, I have two two aspects of this. One is the Russian military aspect of it, which mm. in a kleptocracy, what apparently has happened that they allocated all of these funds to the Russian military to uh, to improve the military and the money was stolen. And I think the funniest story <laughs> is the one I, I, sent, I sent you was that they're using, quote unquote, encrypted radios yes. as part of their military yes. operation. And the Ukrainians are just listening in so they know everything that they're going to do. But I think the, right. the more critical aspect on this, as far as I'm concerned, is the other side, which is the information war. And the last time mm -hmm. that we discussed this, we talked about the robustness of the Internet and how the Internet, even I discussed that the Internet would help sway Russian opinion. And to a certain extent, that is still working. But obviously, Putin and his cronies have been managing to really shut off the spigot to Facebook and YouTube and, and, and Twitter and that sort of thing. And it reminded me that back in the 1980s, and I'm wondering if anybody else has thought of, of doing this, is resorting to what we used to call the sneaker net. Back in the 80s, I worked for a guy whose husband, uh, whose wife was uh, Latvian. And this was just before the breakup of the Soviet Union. And in order to get information on what was actually going on in Latvia and in the Soviet Union to sort of shut down the information, she would get me, and again, this is the mid-80s, so the VCR is still a new device. And she got me, and she knew I was a tech geek, and so she got me boxes of pre-recorded Disney tapes. And I would tape over the record tab, and those of you old enough to remember what I'm talking about, <laughs> I had dual VCRs, and I recorded CNN news broadcasts on these Disney tapes. I would then take the tape off the record tab, give her back the tapes. They would re-shrink wrap them and send them to Latvia with the authorities none the wiser for how information was leaking into the country. Um, and so I'm just wondering whether or not the same kind of sneaker net can be deployed using thumb drives or DVDs to get information to people whose internet service is being cut off in Russia, and ex especially older people who may not be internet savvy to begin with. So I think that there may be other methods, old school methods, other than the internet, to try to get information to the information starved in Russia to try to continue stir discontent inside that country. 
there is in fact a, a campaign called flash drives for freedom that collects used flash drives. We all have like a drawer full of these things from press kits, right? Boxes. Uh, basically load them up with Korean language content and have them smuggled into North Korea. <laughs> they had a great little display. Uh, I've seen them at multiple trade shows. It's this sort of, you know, big board full of cartoon pictures of Kim Jong-un with a USB port for his mouth. So you take out the flash drive you don't want anymore, stick it in his mouth, and then they'll go to town, package it up, fill it up with like the Korean language Wikipedia, K-pop songs, uh, South Korean soap operas, whatever. Uh, so yes, what you're talking about absolutely does happen. Uh, just until recently, you could assume that people in Russia would be able to tune into things, you know, on an internet that was more open than in China or North Korea for that matter. Right. Right, but you know the, the uh, satellite phones are sort of the critical device right now, uh, at least for journalists. But um, you know you've got to charge them, and power is an issue. So the other thing is, I don't know. You guys have probably tested them as well. I've got a slew of these solar chargers. Right, they fan out and they have a solar array on them, but they take direct sunlight, and it takes hours to re to recharge a cell phone. And right. as one journalist, uh, Canadian journalist, I was. Uh, reading his diary basically and he was describing how look i can't really go outside <laughs> you know i'm hungered down it's being bombed and the sh brief moments that i can go outside here to report on it i'm taking pictures and doing things i can't really sit there for hours with a cell phone trying to charge it so power is probably their biggest challenge right now in terms of this i mean and the technology, I'm still, you know, it still looks like Tony Stark stuff to me. I know it's been around quite a while in Afghanistan. It did terrific damage against um, invading forces in Afghanistan. And these are these Javelin and Stingers. You know, the Javelin is the anti-tank weapon and the Stinger is, a sur you know, surface to air. You basically line it up on a touch screen and then you target the, the, the vehicle, touch it, fire it, and then you run away. I mean, you don't even have to be anywhere around yeah. once it hits the target. And that means right. that the Russians, and same with Americans, we're just as vulnerable. Anybody's as vulnerable. We can't target the person who fired it. So I think this, it's this high-tech guerrilla warfare, super high-tech guerrilla warfare that's really starting to work for them. Drones, um, too. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, but... Let me yeah. Go ahead. No, well, the, the last, because I want to hit the next topic, because we're, we only have a few minutes left here, is yeah. that... Do you really think that now that Putin and his wonderful team of generals and military are sitting back after four weeks saying, you know what, this is not going as well as we thought it would be. We're kind of stuck in a quagmire here in Ukraine that we that, that I mean, I, I guess where I'm going with this is that is their technology and the military effort in general, their military capability now turning out to be so primitive that they know they, they could never beat. The, the NATO and the United States in a conventional fashion, meaning that if that ever ever came to just a conventional war, we really could blow the doors out of them out of Ukraine very, very quickly using conventional means, us and, and NATO. And does that backfire in the sense that if I'm Putin and I know that I cannot win conventionally, that I have to use something desperate, you know, this, you know, escalation, de-escalate theory that's bouncing around, which apparently is established uh, um, Russian military doctrine. So, Stuart, I'll just give you the last comment on that. Does this kind of kind of backfire in that sense that it actually pu pushes uh, Putin into a corner? 
Well, I, I think that that's obvious, and I think that's really what the West is afraid of. But I think, as I mentioned the last time we talked about this subject, that new wars are always fought with old technology, and new technology only, you know, it's sort of like survival of the fist. The new technology comes out, and the side that has the newest technology almost always wins. As I mentioned the last time, the, the repeating rifle in the Civil War turned the tide for the North as much as um, black soldiers did. Um, but I think in this particular case, I think the technology within Russia itself, the information war to try to erode Putin's popularity from within, I think is a key, um, a, a key technology differentiator here. I think that he is counting on keeping the lid on and the longer this goes, the, the more opportunities there are for people in the West, including Ukrainians and Russians themselves, to get the word out to people who are not getting the news, essentially. That whole rally that Putin put on, he spoke for five minutes. I mean, I was really shocked at the Western um, coverage of that press conference, of Putin's event, made it seem like that it was gone on for hours. He spoke for five minutes. And, and the news also, I don't think, really spoke about how people were either coerced into going or told that there was a concert and didn't know that he was going to be speaking. So I think that the key technology here is the information war. And the longer this goes on, the more Putin's uh, support is going to erode from within his own country. Putin's well, we, public diplomacy is failed efforts. It's, it's been, it makes the Iraqi information minister look like Charles Foster Kane. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> Another movie reference. Another movie reference. We got it. We got to hit the last topic, but I, you know, it's it just been fascinating from that perspective. And just remember, if you do get invited to a, a stadium with Putin speaking, you probably want to accept that invitation. You probably don't want to turn that down. <laughs> so uh, let's hit that la the last topic. But this one that I think is important to all of you is that you know, Stuart, you were kind of uh, talking before um, online. Is that you know, with all the crazy supply chain stuff going on, we got a war you know going on in Europe. You kind of might expect that you know, OLED prices for TVs might be staying the same or going up. But in fact, you know, to the point you made to me, you know, via email earlier that now you seem to be getting some indications that, hey, you know, TVs later in the years actually might be coming down, you know. So thoughts well, on that? Well, the, the, the Sony, new Sony uh, OLED TV is three grand. Um, so obviously Sony is you're trying to keep these up. But the problem, I think, is, is twofold. The first is that the fact that TV prices in general, especially LCD TV prices, had dr dropped so dramatically, so quickly, the whole idea behind 4K was to give these TV makers a new profit center by increasing the profit margin over 2K TVs. And that lasted for about three seconds. And so I think what LG and Sony are trying to do are carve out a premium space. The problem that they're having is that mini LED and other non-OLED technologies are beginning to really, really close the quality gap with OLED, which is going to make a twenty-five or $3,000 OLED TV not worth the money when you can buy a mini LED TCL for $1,000 that has almost as good black levels. So I think the problem that these come, I, 
think their 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 wallets are in the right place. They want to maintain profit margin and they want to maintain profitability by carving out the kind of premium space that Apple has has carved out for itself. But it's getting harder and harder to justify shelling out that even that kind of money. And mm-hmm. I had an occasion to speak to an LG TV executive, and I asked them flat out, "Are you you're you're selling?" LG display is selling a lot more of these panels, maybe not in the U.S., but certainly around the world. So the price has to be coming down on them in order, you know, just from a volume standpoint. So aren't you artificially keeping your prices up to maintain margin? And the answer was Ralph Cramden. Humana, humana, humana. <laughs> so I, I think that they're going to come out. They're going to have to come, have a come to Jesus moment on this when they realize that they cannot justify a 2.5 or 3x price delta on their sets when a a consumer can go out and buy an almost as good set now for less than a thousand dollars so so john you know you're a tv aficionado and on a variety of different levels um your thoughts on the coming collapse of oled prices i guess I, you know, I test a lot of TVs. Um, I have a basement full of TVs. I have 8K TVs. Uh, what you know, which I actually like, and I think, yeah, we're gonna have a. You're gonna be seeing 8K TVs, but OLED is still far and away better than anything on the market, any other technology, except for micro LEDs, which are not mini LEDs, but. And you can't, nobody can afford micro LEDs right now. So they don't really have any competition. I mean, you still, if you put them side by side, OLED still kills it, man. It's way more intense colors, just, you know, so many levels. So they, you know, they have that position. So Stuart's right. So why should I drop my prices? You know, there's no real point. Um, They also have another issue, uh, which is weight, so uh, shipping these darn things across the ocean or anything is a terrific amount of money now. It's more than 15 times what it cost before the pandemic. So these are really heavy sets, and they're way heavier than LCD sets. So yeah. that, that in of itself means the price is going gonna, is gonna to hold steady at some point, as long as those shipping costs are like they are. Um, that's just that makes it impossible and 8k sets i mean i pushed one up my stairs in my house all by myself and it was like a hundred and there were 100 pounds or something it, it's my even part, heavier. My friend Sisyphus. yeah so it, it's even heavier so the cost is going to stay there but Stuart's also right you know in mentioning look before the pandemic all these prices continually dropped every year steadily 20 percent, 25 percent, down 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 and uh, since this has all happened, the chip shortages and supply chain, all bets are off. So right. who knows what people will be paying at Christmas time, you know? So, Rob, take us home on this and then I know you're a big, uh, you know, you've been questioning AK <laughs> for quite some it's time. It's great. Trying to last one. Got to go out and buy one. But, um, you know, so, how, how do you kind of conflate those two topics plus the OLED topic? And I mean, I know, even taking the OLED portion out of that you know ak it's still hard to rationalize uh the um i mean it is a a better picture you know but it's the delta and the content availability we've talked about this before it's it's harder and harder to justify in in, in that context so any thoughts before we uh, ak is no suborbital space flight that's for sure (laughs) (laughs) remember i've got a picture of a space shuttle launch on the wall behind me (laughs) i would break it down this way for those of you who aren't video connoisseurs, who don't get hung up, who have to remember what OLED stands for in the first place, this is all good news because the more competition there is, the high end, the cheaper things get, 
at sets that are just good TVs that, you know, right. are a mere 50 or 60 inches and already are under a thousand bucks. They'll just get lower, cheaper and cheaper. So yeah, you know, let the video files have added, let the competition drive down prices at the top. And there really is a trickle down effect in consumer electronics in, in this way. Yeah. Uh, the same is true, you know, with um, wireless headphones. I mean, there's so many good wireless headphones in the, uh, on, on the market uh, and the prices are be coming down that it's harder and harder for the Boses of the world and even Apple with their high-end AirPod Max to say, you know what, this is a little bit better than what you've had before. And especially when those products are sold like TVs in a retail environment where retail is probably the worst place to buy a TV because of fluorescent lighting right. and it, it doesn't, you know, doesn't simulate a living room environment as well. I mean, I mean, some like Magnolia and Best Buy, they try to do kind of a living room thing, but that's not very common at every Best Buy store across the country. So it's harder and harder to rationalize the, this premium experience, whether it's a, whether it's a, an AK TV or whether it's an OLED display. So I think you're right. So anyway, I think that's about all the time we've got because we've got to get, uh, we've got to get Mr. Rob to his next uh, little, uh, next little meeting here. So let me just conclude by saying thanks for taking the time. <laughs> yeah. You'll have a lot to talk about that next week, uh, Rob. Uh, but guys, thanks for taking the time to join me for today's podcast. For our viewing and listening audience, thanks for making the Smart Tech Check podcast part of your day or commute. Please make sure that you hit the like and subscribe button uh, buttons at the end of today's podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Mark Vina Tech Guy. If you haven't already, please make a donation to the Red Cross or your preferred charitable organization to help the brave people of, of Ukraine in their time of need. And until next time, everybody have a great week. Mm -hmm.